love dogs. I love dogs, too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show. Yeah, well, I, I try to like time it with basically the, the commute to work or, you know, while you're doing the dishes in the evening, things like that. So it's something that you can get some information in a short amount of time, but it's not too long or too extended to where you miss a bunch of good stuff. All right, so welcome, Dr. Cynthia Bathurst. You are the CEO and the founder, co-founder of Chicago Safe Humane Program. How long has um, that program and that organization been running? Uh, Safe Humane actually came from a sort of a small neighborhood group called the Dog Advisory Work Group, which was founded in 2000. Um, But we were sharing public spaces wisely. But in 2007, we wanted to do more and be more about stopping violence. So we actually started uh, and created the name Safe Humane Chicago in 2007. Um, And then soon after, we changed the name to Safe Humane and then did business at Safe Humane Chicago for the legal deal. So we've been around a while, but as Safe Humane Chicago, we've been around, um, you know, about 12, 13 years. Excellent. And so what, what were you seeing kind of in the cities that um, drove you to begin this program? And how were you kind of tackling some of those issues that you were seeing in regards to violence in the communities? And how did that play into the animals, essentially? Well, Interestingly, I was, um, I had gotten involved in community policing and organizing in Chicago um, in the uh, 1990s, actually, and uh, I became president of a neighborhood association, and one of the things we were looking at is the way people who own dogs or dog guardians and non, and those who didn't have dogs would or wouldn't get along and some of the problems they had in their neighborhood, so we created a committee to deal with that. Along the way, we started seeing more, uh, you know, being more concerned about general violence and um, uh, neighborhood disruption. Uh, and we got involved in community policing. And it just so happened that I did a ride along and actually um, saw um, a neighbor of mine die from a gunshot from, from a murder, um, which was highly unusual in the neighborhood. I can say it now without getting all broken up, but it made me realize how much all of those kinds of issues impact us. So I wanted to do something about it. We had already started the Dog Advisory Work Group about, and, um, and so we wanted to do something more about bringing more people together. Because in the meantime, I also learned a lot more about dog fighting. Chicago Police Department had made an animal crimes team. So we said, how are we going to get people to be really concerned about caring for animals, dog fighting, abuse, but also neglect? How do we get people together to try to make a better city? So we said, look, we all want to be safe. And uh, we want people to be humane, not just to animals, but to each other. So if we had safe and humane, doesn't that make sense? Safe neighborhood is, is likely to be humane. A humane neighborhood is more likely to be safer. So we put those two concepts together and we went toward trying to do something about dog fighting and animal abuse and formed a court advocacy and formed groups of people to help those who needed help, who couldn't help animals. Um, And that was our focus. But as we went larger and as we started looking at creating programs, we knew it wasn't just about stopping violence. It was about being for something. We wanted to 
be able to provide opportunity. So what we wanted to do was provide opportunity for jobs, for healing, for whatever, and that sort of morphed into and created programs with youth leaders, with veterans, with um, uh, young people incarcerated, uh, and how can we get them to use the very positive transformative power of the human-animal bond through dogs? How can we get all those together to help each other heal, to help each other learn skills, whether it's the dogs or the or or the people, young men or young adults re-entering the community, um, and also provide them with job skills? And that's sort of how it just has flowed since then. So it's really kind of more of a reform program for humans, essentially kind of teaching responsibility, teaching more humane practices with, with humans and their animals and vice versa, essentially. Yeah, I, I guess I would say that it was, it's more of a community welfare program where what we're trying to do is help those who want to be help, helped, who want connection. And obviously when you're with a dog, there's that unconditional love for the most part. Uh, there's that resiliency, and so they learn from each other about patience, about giving back, about getting skills. So it's more like providing them with more opportunities to do what they really have the power to do in the first place. Um, we we actually started by working with what we coined and even trademarked, not to keep it away from anyone, but to, uh, to make it special, a, a program called Court Case Dog. And what that program does is it, it, we were at Chicago Animal Care and Control, the city's shelter, animals that were taken from people who were accused of serious neglect, cruel treatment, dog fighting, whatever. Those, those dogs would be taken to Chicago Animal Care and Control and just kept there through the entirety of the case. And what was happening in 2000, um, and actually in 2010 when we started that program, is that 2% of those dogs got out of animal care and control alive, 2%. And you have to ask yourself, why is that? Well, because they were caged up, they never got out. People thought that you couldn't let them out of the cage, that it was dangerous because dogs that had been in abusive situations surely were damaged goods, which they are not. Um, and then also because most of them happened to look like dogs we say are pit bulls and all the stereotypes that go with that. We basically were there watching dogs either go crazy, slowly crazy, not getting enough exercise. So we started a program, used the laws were in place, did a lot of education, collaborative justice, we called it, and were able to exercise those dogs. We brought in play groups and manners classes and enrichment, which actually went to the whole shelter eventually, and were able to help those dogs. So, you know, as of the end of 2020, 98% of dogs that come in with a criminal court case associated with them are assessed and we bring them in and 98% are saved and put it in homes. And we have 1,402 approved court case dogs in homes. And part of the program is giving them free lifetime behavioral support wow. and consultation if they're needed to stay in there. So we're really proud of those animals and that's all part of the community spirit. So a lot of these young people and reentry uh, folks who needed to heal, help us work with those dogs, socialize them, train them, then they go out into the community so everybody is helped. 
Yeah, that's really fantastic. That's a great way to do things. I mean, I, I was definitely frustrated for quite some time because I remember working with a local shelter with some of their court case dogs and you literally were not allowed to take them out. You couldn't interact with them. And, you know, some of these dogs were incredibly sweet when they came in, but after two years in a shelter while waiting for a court case to absolve, by the time they're actually released or surrendered, they're completely nuts, you know, and whereas otherwise, if they had had that kind of interaction and those, you know, we talk about the five freedoms, like if their five freedoms were granted to them and they had just those right. basic needs met, then they would be completely different dogs on the other side of that. And I have seen a lot of shelters, especially the larger shelters in some of the cities that are funded a little bit better, have enrichment programs for their court case dogs. But I think a lot of the smaller shelters are really still struggling with that and have difficulty with the idea of anybody touching a dog that's, you know, doesn't legally belong to the system just yet until the case is absolved. So what are some things that you guys typically recommend for other counties that, you know, especially those rural counties that don't have a lot of resources to help them kind of help these dogs that are in these court case situations to get through it? This is an excellent question because that's what we've been working on a long, a long time is to get um, shelters and groups not only to recognize what they already do, that quality of life matters a lot within the shelter, and then also to get the court systems and law enforcement to understand that not to give them enrichment, not to be able to give them something, even if they don't own the dogs yet, um, uh, is, is a form of, of cruelty in a way. So what we did was we made partnerships with the Cook County County um, uh, criminal justice system. And we were able to work through a partnership with law enforcement to, first of all, work with the rules and the policies and procedures of police departments. So we do, train, do training on that so that they can use them to get the animals relinquished or forfeited sooner. So that's one piece. But while they're there, because we also had trained and um, uh, experienced dog trainers who would work with the dogs and oversee volunteers, we were able to get court orders that allowed safe, humane volunteers within our program to work with the dogs. Now, maybe they couldn't go to playgroup, which we also started because they were worried about some of the liabilities. But the more, uh, the large percentage of animals then, because of what we were also doing in court with court advocates going to court on their behalf, not talking, but being there and providing information, um, they were getting out sooner so that we could also then transfer them to partners, to rescue groups. So there are a lot of things that local groups can do. And one of the things that we're doing is expanding our court case dog program this year to more like at-risk dogs in general, even in the community before there's an arrest or whatever, so that we can help more dogs. Of course, the reason for that is because Chicago Animal Care Control has wonderfully started recognizing court case dogs just like any other dog. Um, yes. And that's a huge victory. That's a big step. I mean, they understand mm -hmm. that all dogs are individuals now and operate like that, like so many shelters are doing. Um, and also that looks don't determine behavior. Look at the dog that's in front of you. Those things, as well as having to work with the court system, that's what worked. And I think. There are a lot of ways we can help people. We're going to work on webinars and things like that this, this year, but we, we would really like to help more groups so that they aren't so frustrated by leaving those dogs in those situations. 
Where does the funding come from um, for like the dog trainers, for example, that are overseeing some of the enrichment or the care or leading those volunteers, uh, those volunteer teams? Where are they getting the funding to help kind of bring these people into those roles? Over the years, over the uh, 10, almost 11 years now that we've been doing the program, the funding started out being largely pro bono at, right at first. And immediately we were able to start fundraising from individual individuals and family foundations. We got a few grants along the way. Best Friends Animal Society got us started. Um, then we had some other grantors that came in uh, to give money. And then also um, we were able to do specific fundraisers for, for paying for the trainers. So basically what we did was hire someone to be our manager, overall manager, who would hire independent contractor dog trainers who use the kind of techniques that we espouse, um, which is positive relationship-based training, um, and work with those dogs, work within the shelter, partner with Chicago Animal Care and Control. Um, and so, believe it or not, the funding, for what we've been able to do, the funding is really small, and I would like to have a bigger paid staff it would make it easier we have a lot of volunteers so you just have to train volunteers and get them going but the real answer is individual and family foundations is just amazing locally once you get the story out there the stories of the dogs stories of the volunteers and the stories of the participants and how they help each other the word gets out and we've been able to fund largely through individual and family donations as well as grants along the way that's good. And, and I'm, I'm liking the shift that I'm seeing with granting organizations as well, because a lot of these small rescue groups that are out there, and there are lots and lots of rescue groups out there that are small and local, but they're getting right. grants, and they had been for quite some time because the grants were all about the numbers. How many dogs are you saving? How many, you know, what's your live release rate? How many dogs are you getting out into homes? Rather than kind of focusing on some of the quality of what's happening with these dogs and with these programs that we're trying to run, now, just from a nonprofit perspective, at least, I am starting to see a shift, which I think is fantastic, more towards kind of educational programs and preventive programs to really kind of support these animals and support the, the shelter and the staff through um, the lifetime of that dog, like you were talking about with having your kind of behavior support after the fact. So I say all that because, you know, I see a lot of people out there that are like, oh, I want to start a new rescue or I want to start rescuing dogs. And I'm really trying to um, talk people out of that type of, of, of program or organization, rather focusing on some of the big picture programs. Um, yes, we want to save the dogs. Yes, we want to pull them out. But what can we do for the dogs that are already in the system or that are going to be entering the system that might not have a chance because of the time that they're spending in that system? How can we make life better for these dogs in the shelter environment, especially the rural areas for the most part, um, but then support them all the way through rescue, all the way through adoption and so on and so forth. Because I feel like that's a piece that's really missing. And though people are starting to catch on and granters are starting to catch on, I still, you know, you've been doing this for over 20 years. I still feel like it's almost like we're barely scratching the surface with that. I mean, do you have it the is. same perspective? I mean, yes. We've learned a lot over the years. What you're saying is so true and so important, I have to tell you, Sarah, because most people don't realize it. It is really hard for those small rescues, but there's a lot that they can do. You can, for example, one thing that we do is we have what's called corporate volunteer days at Chicago Animal Care and Control. Well, at least we did before COVID, but we'll be going back. Um, 
corporate volunteer days where corporate groups who just needed community service, we would have a few of our volunteers who were trained. The corporations would come in, the volunteers would help us do enrichment, even in kennel enrichment, meeting the dogs, bringing them into a manners class like thing, which helps socialize them. And the difference between a dog that's well socialized and enriched and one that is not as huge as you know it. Massively. Um, mm -hmm. And it makes such a difference in, in getting them out. We also found that doing play groups was incredibly important because dogs need to so be socialized mentally as well as physically. And play groups just let them be dogs themselves. And I know there are a lot of issues there, but um, there are a lot of people who would help, who will help. Um, with that initiative, uh, for example, the Human Animal Services um, uh, sort of association that American Pets Alive is putting together is about to come out with a lot of guidelines that I think will help small, small shelters. Um, and I think that that's very important. And the whole idea of providing ongoing behavioral support and medical support. Um, one way that we've been able to help and small shelters might think is that we aren't a shelter ourselves, safety we partner with them. So when they have a dog, let's say a court case dog, and there's a serious medical issue, we not only try to help them fundraise for that, so we join in doing that, and then we also give them a certain amount of money and that sort of thing. So we try to say, we're going to stand behind these dogs, and you can count on us to, to help you. And I think it's really helped change the image, and it, it's also made their volunteers very enthusiastic. Our volunteers right now are so eager to get back to, you know, the yeah. usual. Um, They're dying we'll for some see. of that hands-on work, finally. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think you're right is, um, you know, especially the small rescues struggle with some of that. And what we need is more collaboration and partnerships. We come together and say, okay, here's a dog or here's an issue. Here's something that's happened. What can we do to fix that and, and work together? Yeah, absolutely. I think collaboration is completely key. I mean, the, the nonprofit organization that I'm a part of is, is primarily humane education. You know, we've got an outreach branch and a shelter to service branch Huge. and an advocacy branch, but um, you, we still get all these requests. Can you take this dog? Can you intake this dog? Can you pull this dog? No, we can't, but here's what we can do. You know, and same thing with the right. rescue groups. If you, if you know who your other organizations are in the area that have different um, pieces to that puzzle, different, you know, um, uh, abilities to offer and you come together and you put all those resources together, you can really make a pretty huge impact. So while one organization might be actually able to physically take the dog, they can't afford the heartworm treatment or the, you know, the C-section right. that comes along with that, but another organization can. And same with the municipal shelters. I mean, there's nothing wrong with those collabs and you know, I, I've seen quite a history of the small rescue groups not getting along with some of the municipal shelters because oh, I well, do it this way. That. And, you know, that's that back and forth. And I'm like, we're not going to get anywhere, you know, progressively if, if the attitude is, I don't like what you're doing. It's, it's how can I get involved and how can the resources that I have within my organization help your team and vice versa? Exactly. I think that we've learned a lot. We've, I've been through a lot of coalitions and are part of a lot of coalitions, and I think they're really important. Part of the problem is the sort of the competition for funds and for the dogs or the cats or horses that they are transferring into their care. It's, it's very expensive and very difficult, but the competitive spirit doesn't make a lot of sense. And some of the organizations are saying, look, we're going to specialize in senior dogs. We're going to specialize in FIV cats. We're going to specialize in 
horses that just need a pasture and then work with dogs. And that kind of helps divide up the funding too, and people can help for those kinds of things. Um, so you are absolutely right. And that's part of what we do is try to help in the different niches, fill a niche um, and make it easier for those awesome rescues who are working so hard um, for enforcement and but also for community groups which is where we're going how do you now step back and go into community groups that is maybe it's all about child welfare maybe it's just about keeping your block safe um, maybe it's just about having a social group but there are animal related issues and ideas there that you can help with and the more you go back in there you may find funding from locals here so what if a block gives you seven hundred dollars $700 can pay for half of an ACL surgery or medical or training or that sort of thing. And that can help uh, when you've helped a dog on their block. So how do you guys typically go about cracking into some of these communities? Because I can see that being quite a difficult task. I mean, I know when we go out for outreach services, it's literally door to door. We're talking to people, we're complete strangers. And there's a lot of trust building that has to happen first before they're going to let us anywhere near their dog that's chained up in the back and could use some assistance. But how do you crack into these communities and build some of that trust to where you're able to present some of these programs that you guys offer to really kind of raise the standards and help with combating violence in these somewhat violent communities to speak? Great question. I think part of it is that you go in without assuming that you have all the answers and maybe you don't have all any answers you um so there are a number of ways to get in one is that you just happen to you have people who go out and are associated with a lot of different organizations and they meet people and you start that conversation and get into a community that way or you find a community organization or a neighborhood association that you can do what we call a one-off event let's bring some we have an ambassador dog program where we take court case dogs and any dog so anybody can bring in a dog and they're assessed for what kind of situations they're comfortable in. We take those ambassador dogs and say, we're going to let you meet our dogs. We're going to talk about the dogs. We're going to talk to you a little bit about some of the issues with, um, you know, food and wellness, things like that, upkeep, and also show you some fun things um, with them and then let us hear from you. What are you experiencing? Do you need any help? How would you... How would you do that? So maybe you have a high school girl who says, well, you know, every day I walk to school and there's this dog in this backyard and it's chained and I don't think it gets enough food and water. And so we talk about how the neighborhood could come together and what they can do to do that and not judge about what we think should be happening or, or go in with a, you know, all dogs really ought to be inside most of the time and, you know, sleep on this white couch and, Rather than do any of that, find out what they need and step by step, find the power in them to do something about it. Give them the resources, the phone numbers, the whatever. And pretty soon, you've developed something. A good example is some years ago when we first started, we worked with a group in the South Shore Community Center. And we did uh, what we call pity puppy classes. <laughs> and if the young people, um, we, had met some, we had met some people through... Actually, the um, Jane Goodall Association Roots and Shoots, we then got us into, you know, just one thing led to another. Um, and we got with this group of young people 
and they wanted to learn to train their dogs to do what our some of our ambassador dogs could do. So we did pity puppy classes. That's and great. what we did was we said, if you come and agree to bring your puppy to class, and we'll talk to you about nutrition and food, we'll also provide you with services. But the key thing is vaccinations, wellness, and learning what some of the issues are, and teaching your dog to be a pet, really a companion, and not something else. That's not what we taught. Uh, at the end of the six weeks, we'll give you uh, we'll give you all kinds of free veterinary care and supplies and so forth. And then we want to build you into an ambassador so you can talk to other kids about your puppy. And Excellent. we, of course, encourage things like spay and neuter because a lot of that was, uh, there was, there were a lot of, um, there was a lot of breeding and litters of puppies being born, cats too. Um, but what we tried, to, we didn't require it, but we talked to them about all the reasons for it. And talk to them about what happened to puppies when you can't find homes. And that helped with this. And we just went group by group. It harkens back to what you said earlier, which is grantors who said, yeah, it might be okay if at the end of the year you've reached 100 or 50 or 100 youth, but what we really want is three or 4,000. And what we tried to say is you, you get 50 young people, 50 community members, you get 10. Nationally, in the scheme of things, fine. <laughs> Who understand the issues and go out and try to figure out what they can do in their community. Pretty soon, you it, it spills out into the village. Um, and I think grantors are starting to realize that if you have compelling stories. So I think it's a matter of building relationships. People ask me, how'd you get started on all this? Well, I had to work with the police department for a while. I had to work with animal control for a while. There were issues coming up, and it just one thing led to another, and it's building relationships, and you don't have to start there. Maybe your relationships are with other shelters, but really what you need to do is who knows who in neighborhoods? Who needs who knows who in the area around the shelters where you are? Can you bring some of them in as volunteers to help you and train them? It'll build. It won't happen tomorrow. Might not even happen next month, but by next year, you might have a handful, and you've done a lot if you have a handful. Yeah, and I like that there's, um, because, you know, if you go into these communities, they don't have a reason to come with you yet. They don't know you. You're a stranger. You bring in these dogs. That's kind of exciting, but offering that incentive to just kind of get them in the door. Here's what we'll do for you, and really trying to figure right. out what they want, what they need, what, you know, what would make them feel a part of what's going on in a positive way. And then I like how you guys kind of tie in that ownership piece. So after we've gotten you in and you've started with this program and you're seeing some progress and you're getting something out of it, now we're going to give you a piece of ownership to where you get to be a part of it too. And you get to go out and you get to talk to other people your age and you get to show off your puppy skills, your pity puppy skills. That's and, right. You know, I mean, that's pretty cool. And I could see that being very reinforcing to people and, and being, you know, very successful as far as building trust. But that ownership piece, I think is so important. Um, but the other thing is, seriously, how did we get started? Were you born knowing what to do and what all the issues were? I certainly wasn't. I wasn't even part of the shelter world. And I just realized that we all want similar things. We want to feel safe and we want humane, we want humane treatment of animals and people. When you put the two together, it can be very powerful. It's not for everybody, maybe, but it's for a vast majority. 
Well, I think there's that understanding to it. So in providing the education to the people that are attending, you know, a lot of people do things just because they don't know any better. They don't understand that right. a dog has emotions That's just true. like humans do. So when you, That's especially true. youth, when you open up their eyes to that, it's like pff, light bulbs, you know, all sorts of stuff goes That's off right. and they start thinking about the relationship with the dogs differently. So I, I like that edu- educational component too, because it's, it's not do this, do that. This is what you should do. This is how your dog should live and kind of jamming this. Before you can even directive. come here, this dog has to be XYZ. You got to do this, this, and this yeah. first. No, just come as you are. Let's start there. Let's start somewhere. Yeah, I love that. And, yeah. and I think that's hard. What kind of relationship do you have? Yeah. And I think if you go into a community because somebody they know brings you yes. or knows you and they're just showing you already have an in rather than going in and saying, I've been looking at your community. Basically, they're saying, I've been looking at your community. Basically, there's something seriously wrong here. And we You guys need help, gonna and we're going to provide you, that. <laughs> we're going to empower you to do it. And basically, they all have the power just like we do. We just need to provide them with the resources, the understanding, and the discussion, conversation. Help them be educated and educated about those things and educate us about what that community needs. And a lot of things, I think a lot of the success depends on your volunteers in this situation too, because, you know, having a safe zone, that non-judgmental environment is so important. Volunteers really have to understand before ever stepping into the field or into a program like this, that you're going for progress, not perfection. Just because your dog eats off of your dinner plate and is spoiled rotten and sleeps in your bed, cuddled up next to you, does not mean that that's going to be the life of these dogs. We're looking to improve their quality of life, not go for your idea of of what perfection is i think you know some people really struggle with that they have a lot of shoulds and you got to let go of that should to to make things better yeah they should let go of that should right i mean it's such a complicated problem but i mean i think that you're absolutely right and you know what i don't like to i mean we have a lot of volunteers who say you know cynthia i just i just i can't deal with these young people who don't think or speak or value the same things I do, and they need to understand this. So, you know, sometimes maybe it's, well, you can work in the shelter and work with the dogs for a while, and we'll get other people. You need to rotate, because it's it's tough work, because it basically means being open-minded, non-judgmental, and I think most people, most people want to be, and so that's the kind of volunteers you need. Yeah, it's kind of a default, but I do like seeing the progression of where they kind of finally start to get it and let go of some of that judgment just because they actually get to see for themselves the progress that's being made and just those little little upticks of of making the 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 youth involved or even the adults involved and putting a smile on their face and watching their dog you know be elated for the first time and interacting with this person i think even just those little tiny wins along the way can help open up volunteers that tend to be a little bit more judgmental coming right into it. Yeah, I think that it's a matter of uh, also thinking about your volunteer program and in fact doing education to help them see what are what is our goal? I mean, we really, Safety Maine stands for inspiring positive relationships between people and animals. And we have a lot of programs that try to fill in niches, but if that's the overall mission and the goal, if that's what you're doing, then there's a lot of steps along the way. And you just said it quite well, and there's no reason really for me, me to repeat it because what you just said is 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 absolutely right. Um, isn't it better to have a little bit better quality of life than none at all if they just walk away? 
How much training do your volunteers typically go through before they're really kind of set free into, into your programs? Well, I have to say that our first impulse and what we did at first was do a whole lot of training. You know, like our court advocates would sit in and they'd go through all these materials or uh, people who came into our manners classes would make sure that they had done a certain number of hours and all that. And we still do some of that. We always have orientations. But we also believe in trying, we're developing more of trying to almost have a mentor volunteer, associate them with one or two or three people. So they get the basics, the orientation, and then they go in and do with somebody who already has been doing it and build them up um, so that they get enough experience and confidence. I mean, we have some volunteers who always want to stay with a very experienced, say, handler for working with the dogs or a very experienced um someone like a social worker who worked with some of the young men with the dogs, they just want to stay with a volunteer like that. How good is that? Because it's better to have two anyway, um, you know, together. So uh, I think that mentorship role, um, you have to do training and orientation, and we do a lot of that, and we keep enhancing it. We keep tweaking it and changing it. We're in the process of doing that now because of this new grant we got, which I think I mentioned in and the materials I sent, um, we keep we keep working on it um, in order to make volunteers feel like they're more part. There's ownership again that they can actually help the dogs and the people. And if all you want to do is handle the dogs, fine. You're the dog handler. You're going to be responsible for the dog and the interaction. If you're a facilitator for the program, you're facilitating that interaction of this wonderful dog and handler team with with the, uh, with the participant, whether it's a youth or a young adult or, or whatever. And the goals get tweaked a little bit along the way. Um, you know, if we're talking about community reentry, we focus on job skills more than we might character skills. But volunteers learn that and they can find their niche and we celebrate their niche because we need them all. Well, and for, for the, the mentorships and the training that you guys offer at Safe Humane, do you ever have, um, so say for example, you know, ABC Rescue here or ABC Municipal Shelter here wants to start some programs like this, do you ever have them come up to Safe Humane and kind of shadow your volunteers or go through the process to help them figure out what they need to do to build their own programs? Actually, we have done that a little bit here, a little bit there, and I've started doing that when people just call up and we realized that it was going to be, it was not going to be um, sufficient um, to really help. So one of the great excitements I have is that finally, after all these years, we were able to get some seed money through an organization called the Mental Insight Foundation, who wanted to bring together animal and people, but they recognized that what we were doing was as much about mental health and an impact on the mental health of humans and dogs. And they really wanted to fund that. So they gave us a small grant, a seed money. And what we're going to do, what we're doing is expanding the court case dog program to more like at risk so that communities that say, I don't really have any dogs that are associated with criminal court case or whatever, but then we got all the, you know, so we can look at that. And then our program we call Lifetime Bonds, which is really about that transformative power of the human dog mind. We're going to expand those and build a webinar. Um, and so while we're enhancing the curriculum, looking at metrics, getting all the things that grantors now want, we're putting that together this year. Chicago will continue 
building those and we're going to put together a webinar about some of those and hopefully next year by next year not only will people be able to sign up for a webinar but we'll also be able to offer support come see this or we'll send somebody to see what you're doing and see how we can tweak it for you because you don't have to do it just like us work with your relationship so i'm so excited about this that we're finally gonna we're finally going to be able to do this I think that's going to be a really helpful piece because I, I think starting new programs like you're doing at Safe Humane can be really intimidating, especially for people that are it is. just getting into it because they have a big heart and they want to help somewhere. But actually starting something like that and, you know, you're working with real life people. And again, like you said, mental well-being, mental health. And so it's, it's you know, it's not an easy pill to swallow. So I, I really like the idea that you're going to be offering some of those services, especially virtually initially, and then do some hands-on stuff to help other groups that can that can really start implementing some of these programs too and they can make their own and then we can say look what they did look what they did for example we just started a partnership with a group called teachers pet in michigan and they're doing um, programs and detention centers and that sort of thing and so we're talking together about enhancing that parts of our program and offering it figuring out what they do i mean there's a lot of overlap but what they do so we can offer it to other people i'm just I'm really ecstatic about being able being able to do that and then also raising the whole idea of what are the issues. One thing COVID, raising new issues, one thing that COVID did do um, with all the negative obstacles and everything else is give us time to think about that, but also in sheltering, just think about the changes that have come about in sheltering because of COVID and the restrictions on in shelters and where animals were coming from or not coming from. I mean, the sheltering world has really changed. And I think, you know, for the better to understand what we need to be doing to helping communities. And because of that and those sheltering policies, it's going to be easier. Um, I think offering those resources, one thing I have to say that I'm excited about is that I'm now reticent sometimes to talk about how long we've been at this. And partly it's because it started as volunteer and it's largely driven by volunteer. We don't have a lot of staff. Um, you know, listen, for all we do and all the things that we do, you know, we've been operating with an annual budget of under $300,000. Wow. Pretty amazing when you look at that. It's because we happen to have so many awesome volunteers. Um, but having said that, I, I can't wait to be able to say to somebody, there's a sense in which it took us 20 years to develop this the way we did it and all the relationships and the last 10 years to really do this dog and community part of the program and you might think oh my god 10 years it's not going to take you that long it might take a couple years or something but it's not going to take you that long because we already know where some of the missteps are and a lot of the sheltering policies are different laws are better mm -hmm. also we're starting to think about what social justice means mm -hmm. and so it raises all those issues and helps it make it even easier when a person or a block or a community organization invites you in, can you help us with this? We're being invited in. It's all part of, of that kind of um, inclusion. And diversity happens just because it happens, because we're including and participating each other with each other. Um, and so there's a sense in which, with all of the stuff about racial justice and social justice and other things this is really good because it's going to make it easier for us to do what we all want to do which is if you just want to help the animals you're going to help them and if you just want to help people who are 
impacted by trauma, violence, poverty. So much more has been done about trauma-informed programming. So much more to bring. It's just a whole lot easier now, and there's more that we can learn from each other. So I just want to say to people, you know, go for it. You'll start, you'll find your niche. You'll make some differences and, uh, and go with it. I mean, it'll be a lot faster, but it won't be next month, like I said. Right. Yeah, the foundation is laid. You've got more progressive laws in place. Yeah, it's definitely oh. going to be easier for anybody kind of picking up where you guys have not necessarily left off, but where you're evolving in the process to run with something right. like this. Mm-hmm. And somebody with a lot of excitement is going to see all this and say, why in the world didn't you do this? And yeah, we'd be willing to say, yeah, we tried and here's why it didn't work, but maybe it would work for you. But somebody might say, well, we're just doing this. Why not do that? And we'll say, well, gee, why indeed? You mind if we think about how we, how we make it better? And I think in the long run, then we'll have a safer, more humane, I'll just say world. Let's not be ridiculous here, but you know, <laughs> that's the way we all feel. I um, agree though. Yeah. But I, the other thing, too, is just not stopping at the this isn't working, like tweaking the program, thinking about different solutions to be able to make it work. I feel like a lot of people will start something, you know, hit that roadblock and be like, OK, well, this isn't working. Um, and I feel like some of that mentality is from some former programs. If you if you know about like um, safer certification, you know, when you're doing safer assessments in the shelter, they're like Dave Ramsey. There's no Dave Ramsey ish. There's no safer ish. If you're not doing safer exactly the way we say it, then you're not doing safer. And while I understand that and it's set up so that people don't tweak it to where you're now failing the dogs. Um, it's not like that. And it's important that if you hit that roadblock to get feedback from other people that have had to tweak the system a little bit as well and people that are experienced with it so that you can continue just in a different way, potentially. Oh, such a good point. I mean, it, you know, people need to understand, I just say people, we all need to understand that all dogs, all people are individuals. You need to look at the animal in front of you and anytime you recognize behavior, you may see tendencies, and that certainly helps you. We do certain kinds of assessments, and it has no name. It's the way we do assessments because of the population of volunteers, dogs, community, whatever, changes the way you see things. And obviously, the first priority is that you're safe and that you can treat the animal humanely um, and each other humanely. Once you do that, what do you want to do? You just want to make sure everybody's going to be safe. So what kind of assessment tools? And understanding that that does not define a person. Um, if someone tried to define my behavior on my worst day when I'm really frustrated, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they wouldn't want me in my, in their household. But yeah. <laughs> to be, have a silly example. But I think if people understand that and the need to help animals for who they are um, and help find the right families, for them, um, I think sheltering is is really changing. We're always going to need some shelters, but I think we can probably use less, and we can do more in the community if people are better educated. About oh, I agree. So, and there's so, so many new issues. I mean, one of the things that I mentioned is this um, opportunity we're using as a, I, you know, full disclosure as a as a fundraiser of sorts, but I am just so excited about this new documentary film, which will distress some people and not others, but I think it's a beautiful, beautiful meditative film called Stray. And it's about um, Elizabeth Lowe, the director, follows three dogs in Istanbul 
through the streets because they there they have the kind of oversimplify a no kill but no capture policy. That is, if dogs want to choose to be with you, they choose to be with you, but you're not going to capture them and make them stay with you, which is a very different way of looking at things. So people look at this film like, what is this saying? And there's so much happening right now, but one of the things I like about it is is a different way of seeing the world from the point of view of the dogs, supposedly seeing at their level and seeing the society. And I think it raises all kinds of issues. And a lot of people say, oh my goodness, because you're dealing with some young Syrian people, young men, where the dogs and those young men kind of bond in the way on the streets, living on the streets, not having a home. And there's a lot of tough things to see, but the beauty of the interaction and the seeing for what it is and seeing from the point of view of the dogs can really help us. Um, and it can be disheartening for those who want to grab every dog up and every young person up and, you know, get them in shelter and whatever, which I certainly understand, but it's a beautiful film and I hope people will watch it um, uh, because uh, I think it, it just raises a whole lot more issues about the way we see the world and what we do with marginalized populations, whoever they are, what does that mean about status, security, and also then just the beauty of being able to survive and live. There's something really powerful about that. So we have this um, agreement with Magnolia Pictures so that anybody who buys a ticket, they get to see the film, but they, and we get $5 of the ticket price, but we also put together a panel to talk about it with the director, uh, with uh, Chris Green from Harvard, Harvard's Animal Law and Policy, and also a film professional, Cliff Froelich, and and um, moderated by someone who loves dogs and people. And it's really a very powerful panel. So I hope people can take advantage of that as well, because the more we expand the discussion, the more things like this programming we're talking about can matter. I don't want to take anybody to take it as a straight judgment of anything. And some people don't want to see things that are kind of hard to see. That is animals out on the street, kids out on the street. And, and I get it, but I think it's really important. And it's really kind of a beautiful meditation. I ended up being heart, heartened. I hope other people will too. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see this film and kind of how it turned out. I still think that it's not very um, well understood or even well viewed that um, wild dogs, dogs on the street are very different than dogs in captivity, domesticated dogs, and they live a very different life. And oftentimes there's I shouldn't even say oftentimes, there's a lot of information and research out there to show the overall, what we consider happiness in dogs that are free roaming and street. I mean, you, you think about like the Mexican street dogs, the, the boonies that are out in Guam, they just live a completely different right. life. And when they're captured and forced into captivity, when that's not what they're used to, you see a lot of problems arise from that. So just for people that are, you know, very interested in rescue and very interested in, in saving lives, um, I think giving them the perspective of what's appropriate when and where is going to be helpful. You know, you look at things like the overpopulation problem. What if all these dogs are out there roaming around and they're all just procreating and there's dogs everywhere? Well, a lot of these populations are actually pretty self-contained and self-controlled. And, um, you know, I remember having a conversation with the shelter director over in Guam about um, 
uh, TNR for dogs because there's all these TNR programs out there for cats and their concern was overpopulation. And I'm like, well, just let them go. Instead of bringing them in the shelter, put them back where they belong, back where you found them, almost like you would a wild animal. They're going to survive just fine, can help you decrease the overpopulation problem, and you can live and let live kind of thing because they are surviving better out there. So I think just seeing that difference in dynamic, you know, I think this film is going to bring to light a lot of differences between the dogs that we consider our family companions that we want to rescue and bring into the home and the dogs that are perfectly happy doing dog things in their own dog world, you know, out on the streets and in different areas in their own kind of in their own environment, their own element. You're absolutely right and actually well said because I think um, you obviously know a lot about what's going on in different parts of the world and I think that's important even if you don't think the solution is uh, no capture or whatever. You can see the kinds of things that maybe you want to think about when you're helping these dogs find safer, warmer, better homes if they, you know, if they are better and what that means. Um, and so I think the film will be very important for that. So I'm happy to be kind of promoting it just for that reason. We didn't get this far in Safe Humane by keeping our eyes closed and deciding that we had the solution. In fact, every day I think I know less and less. And listening to what you said and your comments, I think are really, really important. That's the kind of thing we need in sheltering in communities, whether it's for people or animals, but certainly for both. I mean, my gosh, what a great relationship between people and dogs. I mean, whether you have dogs or cats or not, the bonding and the live and let live and live well together is so important. So important. I'm delighted you're doing these kinds of podcasts and conversations. I think they're important. Thank you. I mean, I, I, I think the focus on having mutual relationships with any person, any animal, whatever it may be, is really making sure that the relationship you have with that other creature is mutual. There's a benefit to both sides of it. I just think that's so important. And often, you know, from a dog owner perspective, you know, or a cat owner perspective, not not the focus. You know, it's like, what do I want my animal to do for me? Or what can I get out of this? Rather than how can we both benefit each other in the long run? And it's so natural, isn't it, with with a dog or a cat, if you're inclined toward being around them and you see them as a being, you know, in your world, it's so natural to want to take care of and nurture for the most part, for a lot of people. And they feel the same. When you recognize that, the mutual benefit is is pretty powerful, even just in that little pair. It is. And like all the health benefits that come along with it, alleviating stress, yes. anxiety, you know, upping your immune system to be able to fight off and ward off diseases. Like the, the benefits are just, you know, innumerable. It's great. Yeah, a lot of our programs, seeing young people who are really stressed if they're in a detention center or they're just coming out and they don't have a job, seeing them just relax by just petting the dog and starting to feel okay and not judged by that dog is so powerful. And then watching the volunteers watch that, I just think it's a win-win-win. Definitely. It's, it's amazing to see what other animals can do for people that people often can't do for people. Yeah. yeah someone said to me, if you just had to give me a phrase about what it is Safe Humane does, because now I'm confused, what would you say? And I would say it's people helping dogs helping people. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I like that. 
So for I mean, the that's film, broad, but that's what we try to do. <laughs> but that makes complete sense. It is literally kind of that trajectory and everybody benefits in between for sure. Right. Um, so how can people watch this film? How are they going to get tickets? And I also like that you brought up the panel discussion because I think discussing the film and opening up different perspectives from, from everyone's point of view can be really helpful to continue that conversation long after people have viewed it. So what is, how, are, how are the general population, the general public going to be able to to watch this? Well, thanks for asking. They can go to uh, our website, safehumanechicago.org, O-R-G, um, and actually right on the home page, it says get tickets here. You click on that, it'll take you to a page where you can get tickets that's through Magnolia Pictures. And what you do is you get your ticket and you don't have to do anything else. $5 of it will go automatically to Safe Humane. You get your ticket. Um, you can, uh, and then um, the release of the film is actually March the 5th. But for Safe Humane, we have a little bit of incentive for people to buy them. Uh, to buy them in advance uh, because, sorry, no worries. I apologize. <laughs> so you go to the homepage, you, um, uh, you click, get a ticket. Once you have your ticket, the release of the film is at uh, 2 a.m. Uh, March the 5th uh, Central Time and then whatever else after. You can watch it for as much if any time you want no matter what time of the day or the night it's a 72 minute film um for seven days and once you start you've got a certain number of hours but basically you have a little over a week um to watch it any time and then when you finish the film there'll be a um a little button that you click to watch the panel and we're hoping to do a little trailer like of the panel here soon and put that out so you can also Excellent. go to our facebook page if you use facebook and that's our handle is Safe Humane, just Safe Humane. And um, there's lots of information there as well as on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and all else fails and you can't find it, you know, just mail, get, email, get connected, all one word, at safehumane, safehumane.org. And I'll send you the link or one of our team will send you the link. I think the good thing about that is you'll be able to see the panel um, of Folks, one of the things I liked is our moderator, Jean Sparrow, said that she really liked the main character dog, uh, Zeitin, um, because it's a, it's a portrait of unbreakable zen. <sighs> and I thought that was really cool. And you'll also on our panel hear Elizabeth Lowe talk about some of the things she learned and why she chose these particular dogs. And one of our film experts is asking, you know, what do you do about this perspective? And what are the ethical choices you've made? And Chris Green from Harvard was talks a lot about, he did a lot of research about what's going on in Turkey right now. And actually right now, most, uh, some of the laws that are changing to help those dogs and cats even more. So it's it's pretty good way to look at placing it in the world. And I, we hope people will watch that panel. And that's what's unique to getting it through safety means. That's the panel that we put together. We're very excited. I, I definitely hope people take advantage of that And obviously you can give other money as well. We, we wouldn't deny anyone any opportunity to donate. But I think that the issues are really very important. And the panel helps put it in perspective. 
In particular, I like that you mentioned about ethics too, because as people watch this and as people kind of broaden their horizons, being able to actually extract what is ethical, you know, in the eyes of the dog versus what is our initial emotional response that would lead us to do something that might not be the right decision. Um, so I like that that's gonna, that, that the panel is covering the ethics side of it as well. I think that's great. So hopefully people will take advantage of that and, and, um, listen in and continue that conversation. And not only that, but forward the film to other people, friends, family members to continue that conversation, because we would love to see these volunteers pop up. Um, you know, but, uh, we're obviously, we have a couple of donors who are going to match the first 200 tickets, um, that donation part, which is nice. So it's, that's our incentive, but knowing that the film starts March 5th and will be ongoing um, and they'll be doing it online, I think is really important. In the comfort of your own home, you don't have to worry about masks and social distancing and, and some of those, uh, even as the country starts opening up. Yeah, and I would encourage people to open up discussion boards too about after you watch it, you know, throw it to your volunteer team, yeah. talk back and forth with people about it, gather their input, and you know, you'd be surprised what can come out of those little the little conversation uh, sessions that you would have about a, a, a flick like this for sure. And I like that this is Absolutely. really benefiting your programs too. This is going to the court case dogs and the lifetime bonds, and right. so it's not just a film out there to watch and get some education. It's actually benefiting programs that have already be, been up and running for quite some time and are proving very successful. So that's fantastic. Right. And are helping to enhance them and also going to help us build those webinars to get the information out. So that's what the money's going toward. Wonderful. And I will definitely put a link to the film directly in the in the um, show notes. So everybody can go right there. We'll put Safe Humane in there. Put your socials in there. That way people can connect with you, ask questions, reach out, learn more, volunteer, donate. You name it. I think that will be helpful so people can kind of dig in a little bit more with what you do and kind of get excited about this film, too. And I'm so delighted to be connected with you. And one of the things I always hope when we do these things is that we can get more connected with others. So be more connected with you and the network that you have. It's very powerful. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I love it. The more that we can collab together, I'm always open to that and get information yes. like this out, the better. I, I couldn't agree more. So I really appreciate your time. Cynthia, thanks so much for oh. agreeing to come on the show. I know you've got such a busy schedule. Um, running a nonprofit organization is no small feat. And then to have a project like <laughs> this on top of it. So your time is very much appreciated. Thank you. Well, it helps to talk about it and see what people are asking so we don't get in our own little world and decide we know what we're doing. So I'm... I really appreciate it. You help a lot. Yes, and um, I'm sure people will be excited to throw questions your way too. And if you want, feel free to keep an eye out in the comment section because we'll post this on YouTube oh, and okay. Spotify, Apple. So if they're asking questions that I don't know, I'll probably reach out to you, but feel free to keep an eye and, and moderate and throw Perfect. some information out there as, as needed. So thanks so much.